X-ray. Tell me, do you know what day it is, Evie? Um, November the 4th. Not anymore. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder, treason, and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Thursday, November 5th. Have you subscribed to The Local? We'd appreciate it. Please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Already subscribed? Please ask a friend to join in our fun. You can find us on all platforms through L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E backslash the local Portland. X-ray. Today, back in the day, on November 5th, 1605, Guy Fawkes was arrested while guarding three dozen barrels of gunpowder stashed beneath the British Parliament. In 1604, a group of English Catholics asked Guy Fawkes to join the infamous gunpowder plot, which sought to assassinate the Protestant King James and replace him with his Catholic daughter, Princess Elizabeth. The group decided in 1604 to use gunpowder to kill the king. They weren't sure how to get dozens of barrels of gunpowder under the House of Lords unnoticed. One of the conspirators, Thomas Percy, was able to rent various properties in London, including a home near Parliament. He installed Fox as a caretaker there under the pseudonym John Johnson. According to the English government at the time, the group then attempted a tunnel from that house to the House of Lords, but no evidence of that tunnel has ever been found. Regardless, a tunnel proved to be unnecessary when the group noticed an undercroft or an underground cellar being vacated beneath the House of Lords. They quickly rented that space and began unloading their gunpowder. In 1605, on the eve of their plans to blow up Parliament, a few members became worried about the fellow Catholic sympathizers who might be harmed. Someone in the group sent an anonymous warning letter to Lord Monteagle, which told Monteagle to go home, saying, quote, they shall receive a terrible blow this Parliament. That letter eventually made its way to King James, who demanded that the undercrofts beneath Parliament be searched. Those searches ended in the early morning of November 5th when they discovered Guy Fawkes guarding the three dozen barrels, wearing his signature cloak and hat. That same morning, he was taken to the king. News of John Johnson's arrest quickly spread to the other conspirators who fled London. The king demanded that Fawkes be interrogated, but for the first few days, Fawkes insisted that he worked alone. The king admired Fawkes for his resistance, saying he had, quote, a Roman resolution. It wasn't until November 7th after Fox was tortured on the rack that he revealed his fellow conspirators. In 1606, they were brought to trial in London. The group was quickly pronounced guilty and executed that same day. Fox was the last to be executed, and despite being a late addition to the group, he remains the most infamous figure of the gunpowder plot. And today, back in the day, in 1891, artist Regina Dorland Robinson was born in Jacksonville, Oregon, a skilled painter known for her still life, capturing life in Southern Oregon, worked in oil, charcoal, watercolor, and pastels. Her works were influenced by Impressionism that was born in France in the 19th century. She died at the young age of 26 in 1917. We'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Joanne Zuhl, the executive editor of Street Roots. X-ray. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 
A metro recap of election results. Here's which measures passed. Six measures were decided on this election cycle. Measure 26-218, the Metro Transportation Tax has failed. It would have provided $5 billion in funding for 150 transportation projects to prioritize traffic safety, transit efficiency, mobility, and reliability for roads and transit corridors. It also would have provided a light rail extension to Tigard. Measure 26-214, tuition-free preschool has passed. The measure makes preschool tuition-free for all three- and four-year-olds, prioritizing kids in marginalized communities. Measure 26-11, the library bond passed. This means that Multnomah County will be increasing its library space by 50% through expansions of seven library branches, and a new East County flagship library in Gresham will be planned for development. Measure 26-213, Portland Park's levy passed. The levy will prevent ongoing reductions to park services and recreation programs, preserve and restore park and natural areas, and center equity and affordable access for all. Measure 26217, police oversight reform passed overwhelmingly with 82% of voters voting yes and a mere 18% of voters voting no. This measure is set to amend the city's charter to authorize an independent police oversight board appointed by city council. And finally, Measure 26215, Portland school bond has passed. This measure bond provides $1.208 billion in funding for facilities and educational investments. Your daily dose of data. Oregon Health Authority reported 597 new cases on Wednesday and four new deaths. This brings the grand total of positive COVID-19 cases to 47,049 and 705 total deaths. There has been a COVID-19 outbreak reported at a Fred Meyer distribution center in Clackamas County, Oregon Health Authorities on Wednesday reported a COVID-19 outbreak of 39 cases at Fred Meyer Distribution Center in Clackamas County. The investigation into the outbreak started on October 22nd, but the initial case count was below the reporting threshold. State and county public officials are working with the company to address the outbreak and protect the health of workers. Oregon cannabis sales carry dramatic pandemic gains into the autumn. With two months left in the year, 2020 sales are already near $130 million, above the total for all of 2019. 2020 sales are up 42% over 2019, which is combined adult use and medical use sales. From May through August, cannabis sales topped $100 million each month, peaking at $106.6 million in July, a new record. Governor Brown extends executive order aimed to prevent and suppress any violent outbreaks following the elections. The order, which was first issued on Monday, gives joint command to multiple agencies to respond to unrest. Under ORS Chapter 401, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office and the Oregon State Police are in joint command of public safety in Portland. Brown also said that she is prepared to call the National Guard if needed. The order was meant to expire at 5 p.m. on Wednesday, but it will now run through Friday, November 6th until 5 p.m. Brown stated, quote, all Oregonians have the right to free expression and peaceful assembly, but political violence, intimidation, and property destruction will not be tolerated. We are all in this together, so let's work together to keep our fellow Oregonians safe. Hundreds gather at Revolution Hall and called to defend democracy. The Defend Democracy Coalition organized a rally in March on Wednesday, beginning at 3 p.m. 
After listening to speakers, the group began marching around 4.20 p.m. to Portland's waterfront and planned to march back to Revolution Hall. According to the coalition, the march was scheduled to end by 7.30 p.m. Organizers are calling on protesters to stand up for black lives, demand that every vote be counted, and defend our democracy. The Defend Democracy Coalition is a coalition of more than 50 different community groups. The demonstration was intended to be nonviolent and family-friendly. Participating groups include faith organizations, labor unions, and numerous activist groups. And finally, good news. Three Portland nonprofits will share a $5 million three-year grant from J.P. Morgan Chase to invest in communities at risk of displacement. The newly awarded grant is going to craft three the Network for Oregon Affordable Housing, and the Community Housing Fund. All three organizations have dedicated the grants to community development efforts. The organizations plan to use the money to provide loans to residents and small businesses. They also aim to invest in affordable housing with an emphasis on supporting people of color, most at risk of displacement. The grant money will also be used to provide loans to homeowners to build units for rent. It will also provide assistance to small businesses and entrepreneurs, to help ensure that property remains locally owned. The organizations also vowed to use the grants to address affordability issues and combat gentrification in North and East Portland. And they plan to work on the proposed Max Line in Southwest Portland, which was rejected by voters. J.P. Morgan Chase received 150 grant proposals this year for funding through its Advancing Cities Challenge, part of its $500 million five-year economic development initiative. Portland was one of seven cities to receive the grants. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have Joanne Zuhl, the executive editor of Street Roots, speaking with myself, Emily Gilliland, about the election and the homelessness crisis here in Portland. Welcome, Joanne. Good morning. How are you feeling? Uh, boy, that's a big question. <laughs> um, yeah, I... Uh, uh, woke up, you know, feeling I still feel optimistic. We'll see how the outcomes uh, come to play. But I think there's uh, a lot at stake in terms of this election, certainly nationally, when we think about homelessness and housing in terms of how the current administration approaches things and how his uh, opponent would approach things. So a lot at stake. Any key takeaways at this point for you? Takeaways uh, from the election. the election? Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, if one thing I would comment on is I feel like after 20 years after uh, Bush v. Gore that we have an election process nationally that is um, far worse than it was two decades ago. And that's one of the things that I'd like for us to uh, correct, if I can comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've been working on this incredible series called Finding Home. And the most recent edition, something that really struck me and really most of the writing for Street Roots is just how personal it is. It is a it is a special kind of journalism that you all do. It's not just data and policy. It's hard, intimate stories about Portlanders. Why do you feel like it's so important to tell stories like this? Yeah, we think so, too. I mean, that's uh, really at the heart of what we do in a lot of our journalism, that we're telling stories that other people aren't going to hear or present. So the Finding Home series in this edition, we look at addiction and uh, to some degree mental health issues. And, and certainly I think all of your listeners can respect that addiction and mental health issues are intric- intricately, inextricably excuse me, 
tied together with homelessness. Um, and so we wanted to give a broader perspective on this. And so we really looked kind of big picture here at where Oregon ranks, uh, the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of Oregonians who need treatment for substance use disorder, uh, and such a small fraction actually receive assistance, uh, like only 5%. And, you know, on the other side of that coin is the fact that we spend more and more money on this, and still only an extremely tiny fraction goes to prevention or to treatment to help people recover from substance abuse. So I think anytime someone really has to think about the issue of addiction uh, and the consequences of it, we have to look societally on what's the what are we doing about this. And that's part of what this story addresses and, and tells it through several people that we talk to on the streets um, with very different stories. And they're all just if, I really I hope that the reader understands if they were to meet these people, they would find them to be really interesting, intelligent uh, people that they would enjoy having conversations with, and yet all of their lives were touched tragically um, and, and quite catastrophically by addiction issues. Mm. That connection between addiction and homelessness, what are some of the misconceptions that people have about the relationship? Well, often it's presumed that addiction was the driving factor to lead to homelessness, that it was because of a behavioral or moral failing, weakness, whatever you want to call it, that that is why someone's lives is so far different from their own, and that's why they don't have the things they need to survive, when in fact quite a few people who are on the streets, you know, engaged in or adopted an addiction for survival methods for you know which came first is kind of a, a, a card and horse issue um, one of the parts of this story that for me was really a joy to discover was the issue of rat park um, and this is a study you know I think a lot of people I certainly grew up seeing these ads on TV the ad where the mouse or the uh, lab rat in the cage uses uh, liquid or water tainted with cocaine to such an extent that it kills them. They use it over and over and over again, and they become addicted. Um, that was fascinating to a psychologist named Bruce Alexander, who was like watching that study and just realized how deprived this rat's life was that all it had was cocaine water versus regular water. So he created a study that ultimately became known as Rat Park that had a really different environment for these rats, a normal environment for these rats. Um, they were communal. They had plenty of food. They also still had plenty of drugged water to partake in. And the fact is they didn't. They had a fulfilled life. They had relationships. They raised families. Uh, it's much interesting, more interesting story than I can, than I can probably say in a, a few minutes on the, the radio. But um, it's an interesting study on what causes addiction, and he really sees addiction as something far bigger than, say, just the use of a particular drug or uh, a particular habit, but really conditional to all of our lives, and that in some form or another, we all are surrounded by addiction. So it's quite fascinating. Mm. And how can we as a community continue to reshape our thinking about addiction and homelessness? Obviously, we could, we could and should read Street Roots, but beyond that, what are, what are your recommendations? Well, I think understanding, um, you know, recognizing what addiction really is uh, and, and certainly the histories of addiction and that 
um, you know, it's, it's woven into our society of all societies. It comes in many shapes and forms. Uh, there's all kinds of driving factors to it. Um, as Bruce Alexander, the psychologist I referenced, that it has a lot to do with how satisfied we are in our lives um, and, and also what other external factors are, are, are affecting that. I mean, it is tied in with racist issues. It's tied in with poverty issues. So it's, it's a fascinating topic, and it's much more than just something that's a, a, a moral issue to judge people with. Mm. How have approaches to addiction treatment and recovery changed in Portland in the last decade or so? Um, I, you know, I, I honestly, I can't really speak to that. I don't mm-hmm. know how, uh, you know, I, with any expertise, I think there's a greater understanding around what helps someone uh, emerge out of addiction. We certainly know that a stable housing environment um is a major factor, and it, it, it's a major factor with all of our lives, right? I mean, mm-hmm. how would we handle uh, going through an election day and the stress of all that if we didn't have, you know, maybe just the comfort of the security of a roof over our head? So, you know, understanding where housing plugs into the success of people's lives and the fulfillment of people's lives, it's far more complex than just, again, a roof over the head. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's part of it. And did you all weigh in on Measure 110 in this election? Uh, measure 110 around psilocybin, or no, that's the... Uh, um, around addiction and... Addiction, and mm-hmm. that as we endorsed that, we felt that uh, a, a movement forward around these issues helps broaden the, dis- the discussion. Um, I think we recognized its flaws and realized that it's not a panacea, but that mm-hmm. uh, we do need to rethink um, how we look at uh, criminalizing people uh, punishing people versus really focusing on understanding uh, drug use and recovery. Mm. This piece also covered COVID. What was the focus of that part of the piece? Sure. Well, you know, when the outbreak of the coronavirus happened, there was a lot of concern for the people on the streets. And there was a lot of recognition, I think, for some people who hadn't really thought about it before, around sanitation and safety and health care and how if you don't have uh, the steps that all of us had to take to help prevent this or at least keep it at bay, how that doesn't exist if you are homeless. And I think that opened a lot of people's eyes. Uh, we did a revisit on where we are with uh, people experiencing homelessness and the coronavirus. And we found that since the beginning of the, epi- the pandemic, uh, a total of 71 people have been diagnosed with COVID-19 uh, who said that they had been homeless in the previous 12 months. That's actually a pretty good number and a, a small mm-hmm. fraction of, of statewide figures. And in fact, in just in October, there's been just a little over a dozen altogether. Um, the city and the joint office um, on homeless services credits that to spreading out and uh, deconcentrating shelter space for people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that certainly, I'm sure, had some impact. Uh, people are also able to stay in place in their camps and are not getting moved around, so you don't have that shuffling of uh, of people in the community on the streets. So probably a lot of factors, but relatively positive news that it hasn't been as devastating as we uh, we were concerned about. Of course, you know where we are in the process of this pandemic um, still feels early in some sense. So we'll see what plays out. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for that. And what what's up next? Well, we have a couple of things. There's another installment, I believe, the final installment on Finding Home, which really looks at housing first and the role of housing first in, in helping people, including people with mental illness. So we have an interview with Sam Sundaris, who is the pioneer of housing first philosophy. Uh, we will also be coming up this holiday season. I want to give a big promo, uh, a profile of a gentleman who went into prison uh, and was there for 50 years wow. and was just released. Uh, a year or so ago because of his health condition um, and it's really the story of how how he adapted coming back out on to the streets uh, or out onto the community of Portland so that's going to be a fascinating package coming up so mm. we're looking forward to that Wow and Joanne where can folks find Street Roots? You can find it uh, outside most of your grocery stores uh, downtown certainly we have about 180 vendors who through the course of the week, are active selling at their their posts. And um, uh, if you don't find a vendor, call Street Roots, and we'll happily point you in the right direction. Excellent. Joanne, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Be well. Thanks to Joanne for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.